0: Let's, uh, let's open with a prayer. Father, we, uh, we thank you, God, for uh, our homes, our, uh, our relationships, our spouses. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would use this time to, to help us think about that in a new way and, uh, and to continue to, to grow in our love and, and care for one another. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So occasionally, while this uh, marriage class has been going on, I've been mentioning this to uh, Mike you know, something that, uh, that I've read out of, out of this book, uh, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Here's the book. Here's what it looks like. Uh, it's, uh, and he said, well, why don't you just, just teach on that uh, one week when I'm gone? Uh, uh, here's my problem. This this is not particularly a Christian book, and so I mean he doesn't quote any scripture in here at all. Uh, now there are companion pieces that go with this that that do have uh, examined scripture and and asked more pointedly Christian questions, but uh, but I'm not sure what the spiritual status of, of Dr. Gottman is, but. Uh, uh, he does have respect for religion, uh, he makes references to, to different religions and uh, and gives lots of examples of, of couples that had, you know, were, we're trying to raise, you know, one wanted to raise a kid's Catholic and the other wanted to be Protestant or uh, Jewish or whatever. So so he is sensitive to religious issues and there's some places where uh, he, he does, whether he knows it or not, makes uh, biblical references. Uh, but, nevertheless, is this appropriate for, for teaching in Sunday school? Well, I, I think he makes he makes a, a number of good points. And, in the perspective of uh, all truth is God's truth, if he can observe certain things that could help us out in our Christian mess- marriages, let's bring it on. Okay? So, you'll get one week of this. And no one will so, <laughs> and it's a quick blitz through here. So, uh, let, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, 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 Dr. Gottman. He runs a—I a, uh, I can't remember what the what the full name of it is—but it's a uh, Institute for Research on Marriage out of the University of Washington, and uh, they have a setup there where they have like a, a small garden apartment thing and they invite couples to come in and they just observe uh, they, they, they've done this for decades where they, where they bring in couples they have cameras fitted up around the room they even plug you know uh, heartbeat devices and, and uh, heart and heart monitoring devices on, on people to see how they react in certain situations. And they just observe these folks, and sometimes they just they just let them come in and, and be, uh, be themselves as couples, and sometimes they uh, give them uh, you know questions to discuss or, or issues to, to try to deal with, and uh, and and then they just watch them, and and over years of doing this, and, and what what they also will do is they'll observe a couple at one point Linda and then they'll invite them to come back six years later and see if they progress progressed in anything on these these issues or how they were laid or whatever like that. So, uh, in the process of doing these observations, and they tried to sort out, uh, you know, between which couples seemed to be coping okay and which couples didn't, and which couples, uh, you know, came back and, and had made progress in which couples might not even have been a couple again the next time when they came back six years later. Uh, he was, uh, he found that he, he, over time, was able to have the ability to predict fairly accurately whether a uh, married couple was gonna stay together or not. And so uh, he could tell in 15 minutes, from talking to somebody for 15 minutes or watching this couple react for 15 minutes, that he, he could tell with, with a 91% accuracy whether they were still going to be married at the end of seven years. It's pretty amazing. And, uh, and even for those, I mean, he was 91% accurate, 9% he was off, but even on those nine percenters that he missed, most of them were divorced later on. So he would, had a, a 98% accuracy in 15 minutes, if you gave him a little more time. Wow. So he's 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 observing something there, right? And so then they say, well, what good does this do us to uh, to just sort of be able to predict? Hey, this this couple's a loser. This this couple's uh, not going to make it. How about if we can observe? You know, what sort of things these successful couples are doing? And see if we can teach some of these nine percenters uh, something that, that might help them not fall apart, or even teach the, the couples that uh, that aren't aren't doing so well, but they're still hanging there together. You know, could could you teach them things that, that might help the, the marriage be more successful or more happy? Okay, got right? it. So they started doing that, and that's what's developed into the. Uh, the stuff that they're doing now, and that's the purpose of this book, is to give you seven principles for making marriage work. All right. Now, this book, it you know, really comes out of their their workshops with couples, and so if you get a copy of this book, you'll find, you know, here's a here's a chapter on uh, uh, enhance your love maps, and he explains what love maps are, gives a couple of, of examples of some other couples and uh, how they did well or how they didn't do well. And then there's a whole bunch of questions and some exercises and a little game you can play with your spouse. And it's, it's all stuff you can do. It's not, it's not just reading and, and talking about it. It's, it's exercises that, that you can do to help enhance your love maps. We'll talk more about that when we get to what that is. So it's really, it looks like a book, but it's more like a workbook type of thing. And, and so to really work through this book, it would probably take you about five years to, to get through this, to do all the discussions. And as a matter of fact, he's come out with a new book now, which is something like uh, Eight Dates uh, for Couples to Have, where you go on a date, you each read this chapter, you answer a few questions, you talk about it over over dinner or over, you know, walk through the park or something like this. And uh, now we did something like that some years ago. We had a, a thing called 10 Great Dates. Some of you are nodding remember that. And it started out well and ended up weak, as, as I recall. But, uh, but I, I, would, I would have confidence that this might have something more substantial to chew on. Okay? Okay. Hey. So, uh... So the uh, so how did I how did I get on to, to this book? Uh, by the way, one uh, uh, the Ravenhorse and I go on uh, a uh, vacation every year with uh, with some other couples. We've been doing this for forty forty five years or so, and, uh, and one of the uh, couples there is. Uh, the, the husband is a psychologist at a Mennonite hospital in, in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. And he uses this book a lot with the people that he counsels with, and I got a lot of respect for him. He makes reference to, to certain chapters out of this when we were talking together. which So that gave me some, some credibility. Also, Mike has been using uh, a book by, uh, is it Mark Trippett? Uh, well, Trippet uh, was was with uh, the CCEF uh, group in Philadelphia, and one of his buddies there, uh, uh, Tim Lane, uh, they wrote a book called How People Change, and uh, and I thought that was a very good book. Well, Tim Lane was asked by the Potomac Presbytery to come uh, give a talk, and he said, "Well, what do you want me to talk about?" And he said about uh, marriages so he showed up and he talked about this book and it, it was really he was just giving a book report kind of like what I'm doing uh, today but he, he did a longer better job than what I, I'm doing so okay so those two things sort of add credibility to me even though this is not written from a Christian perspective uh, but it uh, but I think it does have stuff that can speak into uh, Christian marriages. Uh, I wrote some quotes that, uh, that that appeared in the book if you look on under 1C this this I think was, was one of the, the key quotes out, out of the the book as a, as a whole what can make marriage work is surprisingly simple happily married couples aren't smarter, richer or more psychologically astute than others but in their day to day lives they have hit a dynamic that keeps their negative thoughts and feelings about each other, which all couples have, from overwhelming their positive ones. Rather than creating a climate of disagreement and resistance, they embrace each other's needs. When addressing a partner's request, their motto tends to be a helpful yes and, rather than a yes but. This positive attitude not only allows them to maintain but also to increase their sense of romance, play, fun, adventure, and learning together that they're are at the heart of long-lasting love affair. They have what I call an emotional, intelligent marriage. And then the next quote. Even happily married couples can have screaming matches. Loud arguments don't necessarily harm a marriage. Boy, that seems odd uh, that the, the couple would be screaming at each other, but he made a point several times that it's not the couples that argue together that fall apart. At least they're talking to one another. It's, it's when uh, couples just cannot discuss things together, so much so that they avoid even taking up an issue at all, and so they kind of avoid talking to each other or they kind of avoid one another around certain issues and then they begin to sort of develop parallel lives within the same house, kind of what like Mike was talking about, two ship, ships passing in the night. Uh, and uh, so they, they really are not living together, they're living separately together. Uh, and, and those are the couples that, uh, that tend to have the problems. Okay, now my outline here that I put together is not very clever. I just went through and picked the, chap- the 1, 2, three, fours are, the, are the chapter headings of, uh, of each chapter in the book. And uh, I'll walk down through a little bit of this. You can interrupt me and ask questions. I probably won't know the answer to it, but we can talk about it. Uh, but uh, we'll go as far as we can, and we might not finish. So, but, So basically, this is... This is the kind of book report you get in uh, third grade, where the person tells you the details and then says, "And if you want to know how it ends, you gotta read the book." That's, that's what this is about. Okay. So, what does make marriage work? Uh, it's friendship versus fighting. Building a sound relationship house. Repairs. A couple's secret weapon. What he means by repairs is uh, successful couples find ways to take the pressure off when those very tough uh, uh, discussions are taking place. And, and, and he emphasizes again and again that everybody has this. There's some sort of, sort of issue that, that uh, you came built one way, your spouse came built another way, and you're just not getting past that. And you argue about it again and again. And it 's the same argument over and over, and you're you're insistent upon getting your way she's insistent upon getting her way, uh, but the repairs are where people find ways of taking the pressure off of that, uh, and by that, I mean sometimes in the midst of discussions one might uh, might have the uh, uh, the sense of where they are, and say, "Look, I just got to take a break for a little bit. I'm getting too heated on this. Let's let's take a 20-minute break here, and then come back." Or somebody has a sense of humor to to uh, even though you're you're fighting over this issue, you can step back and laugh at it a little bit, uh, or uh, or other sort of mechanisms. Uh, and then uh, chapter 3 how I predict divorce I said that he had the ability in 15 minutes of predicting whether uh, a couple would get divorced or not with a 98% accuracy level so how does he do that well these are the, these are the things that, that uh, uh, to him stand out first of all when they start talking about things a harsh startup is a is a bad signal. What's well, a harsh start up? Contention yeah. from the first utterance? Yes. You always do this is how come you never do it? I got in the car this morning and it was out of gas. How am I supposed to get in and blah blah blah. Just it starts with a very heated uh, uh, it's, it's it, it doesn't start out easy. It starts out very hard. So that's, that's one bad sign. Second sign is what he called the four horsemen. Uh, criticism. Sharp criticism, I would say. Uh, contempt. Defensiveness. And eventually stonewalling. Stonewalling being where you get one person just shuts down. Doesn't talk anymore. Third sign is flooding, and and I had to read this several times to figure out what flooding is. But that's that's where you get so heated, so upset, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes through the roof, and you just can't even think straight. You're you're so intensely upset about this that uh, that uh, that's particularly where you need to have these uh, repair uh, mechanisms or. Uh, uh, Safety valves. Fourth sign is body language. His fifth sign was failed repair, repair attempts. If somebody attempts to take a time out or, or to uh, make an apology or back off a little bit, the other the other person doesn't even pick up on that signal and just blast right through all the harder. His uh, sixth sign was bad memories. You know, most couples. He was saying, you know, if you get them talking about how they fell in love or how they, you know, how their original marriage was, they get thinking back fondly about what life was like and what you, you know what, when we first met and what you said there, and, that, and that's. Uh, but some couples, uh, when when it gets uh, when it gets bad, they only remember the bad things. But you know, you remember our marriage. We should have known right then that it wasn't this wasn't going to work. You know, your uncle came in drunk and, well, and uh, you know, this and that, you know, and all they remember is, are the bad parts, whereas another couple might look back and say, remember your crazy uncle came in drunk and they'd laugh about it and, you know, they just remember things in a different light altogether, and when it gets to the point where everything is a bad memory, that's you really brother in trouble. Okay, so th- those are some of his, his uh, keys for, for make, being able to make this prediction of, of a negative outcome. So, uh, what are the principles that, that he gives you for not falling into that? Uh, principle one enhance your love maps. And what he means by love maps are uh, what do you know about your spouse? I mean, what do you really know about your spouse? Uh, you know what uh, he or she really likes or doesn't like. You know what their tastes are in music, or, or who their favorite artist is, or uh, where they like to eat, how they drink their coffee—all those stupid little things. But you know, are you paying any attention to this? Uh, and uh, and also about their history, what they've been through. With, uh, what the family was like how they grew up uh, and also their dreams for the future some couples you know just never talk about that uh, but, but they, they may have separate dreams and never talk about it. Uh, so he has several ex- exercises for, for understanding and and uh, he has also lots of of examples because you know, of course he's filming hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these couples uh, in, in this uh, in this institute and, uh, and so he has lots of good stories. I can't repeat the stories, I can't tell the stories like he tells the stories. But he had this one couple that came in that uh, the husband was quite a workaholic. He had a very important uh, medical job but uh, he would work all the time. Uh, and uh, when they got talking about these love maps he couldn't even remember what the name of the dog was at the house he couldn't even remember which, which room he walked in to go out the back door so if he was at his house he would have to look around behind the back door that's pretty bad <laughs> but that couple was redeemable because he, cause he came, kept coming back to them later on uh, principle number two Uh, Nurture your fondness and admiration. Uh, 94% of the time, couples who put positive spin on their marriage's history and their partner's character are likely to have a happy future as well. When happy memories are distorted, it's a sign that marriage needs help. Respect and appreciation are the antidote for contempt. Uh, And... uh, I think, you know, in this chapter, I kept thinking about, you know, the, the passages in the, in the New Testament where the woman is to have respect for her husband and the husband is to love the wife and uh, care for her tenderly. I think that's, that's the idea, is that, you know, if we have respect for one another, uh, respect enough to, to listen and fondness to, to cherish them and care for them and protect uh, one another, and that's, uh, that's what, a, what will get you through uh, some of the arguments that, that you would have. Uh, principle number three, turn toward each other instead of away. The example that he used was somewhat dated, it seems like. You know, he was talking about a man sitting there reading the newspaper and having uh, a discussion with his wife who was reading a magazine and uh, one would say one thing, and the other would say something else, and they thought they were talking to each other, but they really were talking right past each other. Where you know, he would pick up on one word that she said, and think she was saying one thing, and totally misinterpreting. But they weren't even looking at each other. They weren't even they weren't talking at all. I think the uh, uh, today's. Uh, optional this is is uh, in, the, in number b there being distracted by the wired world how much of our time is really spent looking down at these things instead of looking you know into our spouse's eyes and really trying to see what what they're they're saying <coughs> uh, coping with the, your partner's uh, sadness fear and anger uh, and one quote in uh, bold, there says, "When you are in pain, the world stops, and I listen." Is that really true, or do you are you absorbed in trying to get something ready for, for work the next day, or uh, or catching up on the sports scores or whatever? He made one statement that really amazed me. He says, "The average couple spends 34 minutes in direct face-to-face conversation per week." Thirty-four minutes per week, and quite often that's just talking about routine things. Or are you going to pick up the kids uh, after soccer practice? Or is that, I got this other sort of meeting, that sort of thing. Uh, so turning toward each other would be to make a point of, uh, of putting down things and really talking and listening to one another. And perhaps setting aside time to specifically do that. Uh, principle number four: uh, Let your partner influence you. This seemed to be uh, more directed to uh, macho husbands that uh, like to make all the decisions in the family. And uh, the example, first example that he gave was a of a man shopping for a car, a used car, and. Uh, he said, "Well, I, I want to get a mechanic to look at this before I buy it because I told my wife I would I would do that." And uh, the other man kind of ridiculing him that, uh, "Gee, you know, you do this. But, I mean, but don't you? You know, you're doing this because your wife told you to do this?" Yeah. Well, it turned out he found out that the car had a problem, uh, or the mechanic found out that. Then, uh, but uh, but to what extent? You know, do you share what you're doing in, in other areas of your life and then listening to your spouse and, and, uh, and taking their advice on on things and letting them influence the things that, that you're doing? Uh, the wives of men who accept their influence are far less likely to be harsh with their husbands when broaching a difficult marital topic. This increases the odds that their marriage will thrive. More than 80% of the time, it's the wife who brings up sticky marital issues while the husband tries to avoid discussing them. This isn't a simple a symptom of a troubled marriage; it's true in, in most happy marriages as well. Then he talk, uh, talked about uh, two kinds of marital conflict, uh, and that were those are some conflicts are perpetual, and some complex are solvable. And this here's another statistic that blew my mind was he said that sixty-nine percent of all marital conflicts are perpetual conflicts. You won't get past them. So I said I guess that means I'm never going to persuade Melanie that Coke is not a health (laughs) product. I guess I got to give up on that. I, although we know, ours, quiet, quiet. <laughs> although we know, orange juice is far better, right? Right? I guess I'm not gonna win that either. Uh, despite what many th- uh, therapists will tell you, you don't have to resolve your major marital complex for your marriage to thrive. <clears throat> yeah, but he, but you do need to be aware of gridlock, and uh, and here's. What, what he uh, described as gridlock. The conflict makes you feel rejected by your partner. You keep talking about it but make no headway. You become entrenched in your positions and are willing, and are unwilling to budge. When you discuss the t- uh, subject, you end up feeling more frustrated and hurt. Your conversations about the problem are devoid of humor, amusement or affection. You become even more unbudgeable over time, which leads you to vilify each other during these conversations. This vilification makes you all the more rooted in your positions and polarized, more extreme in your views, less willing to compromise. Eventually, you disengage from each other emotionally that would be gridlock, and that would be to be avoided. And he gives, gives some uh, hints and some uh, workages about how you can uh, try to avoid that. That make sense? Yeah. And then solvable problems are taken up in, in, uh, in the next chapter under principle five. Uh, you should solve your solvable problems. If you have problems that, that can be rectified, we'll do it. Uh, and here's here's his suggestions for for doing that. You so, you soften your startup. You don't come in saying you're an idiot again. I told you this before. And blah blah blah. He he, uh, he made one point here about uh, how these. These uh, these rules here of, of how to uh, solve these solvable problems are just basic uh, polite, politeness. And he, uh, he said, "Okay, suppose you had a guest over to your house, and, and uh, while while you're eating dinner, and accidentally knocked over the wine." And, another glass of wine, versus if if uh, your spouse did this, then would you jump up and scream and yell and say you're such a klutz, why are you always, always spilling the wine, that's another tablecloth I'm going to have to throw out or whatever, you yeah, so know, there, there's all kinds of bad ways you could approach that, but uh, but basically, you're to be as polite to your spouse as you would be to, to a guest. Uh, so you soften your startup. Uh, you learn to make and receive uh, repair attempts. You learn to recognize a repair attempt coming from your from your spouse. Your future together can be bright, even if your disagreements tend to be very negative. The secret is learning the right kind of damage control. Soothe yourself and each other. And again, he's referring to when the heartbeat gets up to uh, 100 beats per minute, you won't be able to hear what your spouse is telling you no matter how hard you try. Take a 20 minute break before continuing or renew it the next day. Uh, compromise, and compromise is it. That's how that's how you solve the problem is you figure out a way that you can, uh, you can uh, work together or I'll do this part of the job and you do that part of the job or whatever. Uh, And process any grievances so that they don't linger. And uh, coping with typical uh, solvable problems, uh, the most typical areas of marital conflict, he outlined in seven different uh, items. One is work stress. That can create uh, stress on the, on the family. Uh, in-laws, uh, money, very common. You view of sex, housework, uh, internet-fueled distractions. He takes up pornography under that. Uh, and a new baby, bringing another life into the, into the picture can create lots of stresses. And the new baby can create lots of stresses with the in-laws because they'll come in and tell you what you're doing wrong in the way that you're raising the kid. Uh, so he, he gives some different suggestions about how to solve some of these very typical uh, things. Uh, overcome gridlock, and he uh, these these issues here. Uh, going back to what gridlock is, that was in uh, chapter 8, Signs of Gridlock. Uh, a lot of times they, they, they come because you have different sort of visions or expectations that you brought into the marriage, whether you're even aware of it or not. And, uh, and so you need to sort of talk out what, what are your dreams made of. What, uh, what, are you, uh, what are you aiming for? And you need to articulate that to one another and, and talk about it. You know, one person may have the dream that, gosh, one day I want to buy a house on the lake with a, with a boat. Well, that's the last thing the other person wants to, wants to have. They want to uh, save their money and, uh, and, uh, and go to the beach more often to the mountains or something. Uh, are those dreams that are just so dearly held that they can't be they can't let go of? Or, or can they talk this out? Can they uh, can they learn to respect those dreams? Can they learn to try to work in those dreams together? Uh, but when dreams are hidden, and I can't talk about this, or I don't know. Really be interested in this uh, then then that's where uh, you get you get arguments that that, you, that never seem to be that come to a head never never seem to be able to solve uh, because you're not really laying all the cards on the table. Uh, so he, he suggests that you become a dream detective and he gives them uh some hints at how, how you can uh, become a dream detective and help your spouse articulate more about what, the, what they really are caring about. And the last principle is uh, create uh, shared meaning uh, and uh, four pillars of shared meaning. One is uh, rituals of connection. Melanie Brockman is very good on rituals of connection. Uh the, uh, there are certain times where, where we talk about stuff together, or there are certain times where, uh, well, a key ritual of, uh, of connection was uh, we, as the kids were growing up, we always had dinner together and around the house, you know. And, and it really was surprising to me that some families didn't have that. But, uh, you know, and sometimes it would be chaotic, and, you know, we'd try to finish with a with a uh, devotional uh, scripture reading around around the table, but sometimes <laughs> those were better uh, sometimes than they were uh, other times but uh, but nevertheless, that was a ritual and and it became a, a a way in which we talked to one another and learned about what other people were thinking, sometimes argued together with with uh, uh, but uh, but it was a way we connected uh, also uh, holidays, birthdays, there were certain just rituals within the house that, uh, that we always did, that people had comfort and they were connecting, they knew how they fit in in the family. Uh, support each other's roles in, in what they're doing. Uh, know what, what each other is doing in those roles. Uh, Don't get so caught up in your own world that that you can't see and understand what's going on in the other world or not willing to hear and listen to what's going on in the other world. And pillar number three, shared goals where you at least talk about what what your goals are and, and what you're trying to aim for so that you know why you're doing what you're doing. I'm a financial planner. I see this all the time that people have different Expectations, uh, and uh, I have some clients that they just want to talk to me. They, you know, my wife doesn't need to be present. Wow, uh, I don't know how that works. Uh, that uh, I mean, because because the spouse has got to have some goal or some vision of, of what they want, and if if he's not even engaging her enough to, to that she would. Uh, uh, have input on that, or he's not listening to her, uh, I think that can only be harmful unless they're so, especially non money oriented. <laughs> they don't even, even want to talk about uh, Pillar number four shared values and symbols. Uh, you build a, uh, where it talks, uh, created shared meaning or created shared life, created shared values. Uh, we just got back on a trip, and I know some of you have been spectating on uh, on Facebook about, <laughs> about what was going on, but we went with uh, uh, General Assembly was last week down in Dallas, a daughter that lives in Dallas, uh, and uh, she has a grandson that, that we don't see as much as other kids, so we want we to go down and spend time with her. Uh, also, uh, uh, the, the fixes were going to General Assembly. This is uh, my uh, daughter and son-in-law. He's a, a a pastor out in Bowie and they wanted to go down to General Assembly and they wanted to see Sarah and uh, and Mark and Ron. Uh, but then the idea came up. Well, Melanie, my wife, is, is from Oklahoma and she's always talking about Living in Frederick, Oklahoma, which is a small little town that's drying up and blowing away, but uh, and the farm there and about her her uh, grandparents and stuff. So they wanted to go see some of this. So we we spent an extra week just traveling around in Oklahoma. And uh, I tell you, those days we went to uh, to the old farm where. Uh, this is this is back like in 1900 or so. Uh, they were just opening the Oklahoma Territory at that time, and uh, uh, and Melanie's uh, grandmother and grandfather came across the Red River in a covered wagon. No bridge. They had to, you know, Red River. If you if you see it most of the time, it's only about this wide. You can you can step across it. It's not much of a river, but nevertheless, you had to get through this. Riverbed, but they came through on a covered wagon with two little kids, and uh, and they homesteaded on a piece of land, crummy old piece of land. We we went out there to the land and, and stood there, and we could see the area where they built this sod house in the side of this this little hill, and uh, and they and they lived up there and worked that land, and and you could you could just see and feel and taste how hard life must have been to do that and how much work they had to put into that. And uh, and they worked that land and they stayed there even through the dust bowl and they had a few crops and they bought another piece of land which was a little bit better. And eventually they moved and built a, an actual house there. And they still kept this land and they kept that land and they bought another farm. and eventually they, they became you know pretty prosperous farmers but it was a hard hard work. and uh, uh, so we're there with our grandkids and they're seeing this they're seeing the legacy of, of, of hard work and, and determination that was handed down to them. and uh, that's Melanie's story and that's my story now and and uh, it's it's uh, it's something that, that uh it, it sort of goes into that uh, that whole mix of, of what it's like to be uh, in our family, and, uh, and what are, what are some of the values that are important to us, and some of the symbols that are important to us. Uh, so it's a very important week, and, and other things. We went around to places where Melanie had a house, and uh, her, her family grew up, and where their parents died, her parents died in a fire and we drove down the road past the place where her brother got killed in an automobile accident. And uh, gosh, you know, it was it was just very therapeutic for, for Melanie, I think, to to for the family to share in all of that. And uh, so but hey, I'm busy Melanie, I can't go on this stuff. I gotta go to the General Assembly and got work. You know, you, uh, if, if that were the approach, then you, then you missed out on that opportunity to, to build those shared values together. So, well, that's my quick run through of, uh, of the book report on uh, seven principles of making marriage work. I'm sure you've got it all figured out now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes? Yeah. I
1: suggest Friday night date night because it- literally pulls you away from all those things all those things happen just because of life with the, you know, looking at your just and you seems know, your be crazy and hectic and just a lot of things you can make it hectic. Friday night is designated for you to go out for the woman to be treated as a date and not a mother that has stood up all over her and have the chair pulled out for her, and the doors open, and you can't talk about the kids. You can only talk about what's going on in your hearts and your minds and going forward, and it's really wonderful, it's wonderful, it just changes everything, and you can look forward to it every Friday, so if your day, if your week is just really horrendous, like
0: Friday night, I can't wait, <laughs> so it's really great. So that's that's part of you creating rituals and connections? Yeah, it's, uh, that's right. Really yeah. Did you all hear that over here? Yeah. No, okay, good. Yeah. Any other observations or questions? Well, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll move on into the worship. Father God, we thank you for uh, uh, our families, again, for the, for the families that, that we grew up in and, and the uh, contributions that that made to our character and who we are. We also pray for the families that, that we're in right now, whether we may be in in the future. We pray, Lord, that, that we would take care on nurturing those relationships that we show one another respect and love and we would appreciate the the qualities that that each person brings to that relationship. Lord, I pray that you would build strong friendships uh, with the couples here in this class. pray that we would uh, be able to work some of these principles out in our lives. In your name, amen. Thank you all.